Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is music technology expert Vicki Nauman. First of all, there are signs that at some point automakers will ditch radios completely in new cars. Volkswagen, Audi, Volvo, and others have yanked AM from electric vehicles, and Ford announced in early April that most new and updated 2024 models, both gas and electric, will discontinue the technology. In fact, eight of the world's top 20 car makers have removed the broadcast format from electric vehicles. 46 million Americans overall listen to 5,000 AM radio stations per week in the United States alone, according to Nielsen Audio. AM-FM radio represents 60% of in-car listening among adults, according to Edison Research, and AM-FM radio's share of ad-supported audio in cars has been remarkably consistent for about five years in the 88 to 90% range. When you talk about niche listeners, a good example is the many farmers who have vehicles that only get AM radio. But more important is the loss of emergency services over AM, which is one of the pillars that the format was built on. This is so important that seven U.S. Senators and Representatives introduced a bill in late May to direct the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to require AM radio installs in new vehicles at no additional cost. That said, most AM content is also streamed over the internet and available on HD radio, so there are alternative ways to still get access to the content. So today, radio is still here, but we just don't know for how long. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. This week, streaming platform Tidal announced that high-res lossless audio in FLAC files up to 192K 24-bit is now available to a limited number of subscribers, with the full rollout coming in August. Until now, the platform used the MQA format, which has been really controversial as some feel that it's really not truly lossless. Not only that, you also need to purchase a device to decode the format. Tidal is the only major streaming music service that uses the MQA format. Amazon Music, Apple Music, Deezer, and Quobuz all offer lossless high-res audio. Amazon Music uses the FLAC format. However, Apple uses ALAC, its own version of a lossless audio encoding. Okay, Spotify, it's now your turn. My guest on this episode is Vicki Nauman, whose expertise crosses between music and technology, finance, gaming, and the digital business economy. Vicky's built one of the first DMCA-compliant services at tastemaking station KEXP in Seattle, developed music tech work experience and licensing at MusicNet, which was one of the first legal digital services, 
ran strategic partnerships for connected device manufacturer Sonos, started and ran the U.S. business for global music platform 7Digital, and did digital business in Europe and China as a consultant. In a previous life, she also ran marketing programs and produced live broadcasts in traditional radio and the NPR network. Vicky's cross-border works music tech and technology firm has worked with digital business and sync departments at Universal, Warner, Sony, Sony Publishing, UMPG, Warner Chapel, Merlin, Beggars, and many more labels, publishers, PROs, and distributors, as well as emerging sync platforms and rights administration services. During the interview, we got a brief history of digital music, a look at Web3 and the opportunities for music, why the metaverse is going to be more than just gaming and social activities, how AI plays into the creator future, and much more. I spoke with Vicky via Zoom from her office in Los Angeles. I'd like to go back to the beginning when you first got in the music business. So I read a little bit about what happened, but um, please tell me. Oh, absolutely. So I used to work in radio. And, you know, when I when I first started out, I worked at Procter & Gamble. And I knew almost immediately, it's like, this is never going to work. This is just too, you know, like, I don't want to just sell toothpaste and, you know, help a company increase their market share for health and personal care products. And then I worked in radio for many years and mostly in the ivory tower of the NPR network. To me, that was that was like my way of being able to be in music and be in culture, but have a legitimate job. And then when the first Napster happened in 1999, I was I, you know, I'd been reading about it. And then I thought, well, I need to try this. And um and I I downloaded the client, you know, the Napster client. And I remember watching, you know, scrolling through and seeing millions and people and millions of songs. And I thought, I thought, oh, this everything just changed. And I downloaded just a couple songs. Um, but I thought everything just changed. Um, you know, the there will no longer be limitations for radio limitations on record stores and what you could buy. I would no longer have to, I was, it was was at first very personal because I thought I no longer have to just go to the cutout bin to find imports. And, um, and, you know, my, my initial thoughts were everyone's going to make so much more money. And I've, I've never really not believed that even though it has been bleak for, you know, those early years were very, very bleak. And I feel like we're now we're finally starting to see a, a new economy that has been established around music. And um, I, 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 I still feel like it's going to be bigger than it ever was before. But I think the um, I think it's been a long it's been a really, really long road. And I never imagined I'd still be doing this 23 years later. <laughs> OK, so you downloaded the Napster client and you realized where things were going. And then how did you switch from radio? Well, it was it was actually it was really funny because I I was working at a radio station in Seattle and I wanted to do I wanted to make a change and I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. But I had two simultaneous job offers and one was to go be the executive producer of Car Talk, the NPR show with the two yeah. with the two Maliazzi brothers, be the executive producer of all of their online properties because I knew I wanted to do something with new technology or to join this new company that was a joint venture at real networks called MusicNet, 
which was a JV with the major labels, three of the major labels at the time. And so I made the decision to, to stay in Seattle and to do the Real Networks MusicNet job instead, because I felt like if I want to do this, I need to start learning. I had no idea the significance of that being one of the first two legally licensed services, but I, I joined the company and I was, I was a, um, I was a, in the content and the product department doing mostly music related things. So PNL, um, I was supposed to onboard labels and work with labels and licensing people and getting, you know, I was very green, but the first, I think it was the first or second day that I got there, they said, well, we have, we're having a problem because none of the, none of our joint venture partners will give us any music. And so we, you know, we we're, we're debating whether we should just start ripping their catalogs ourselves or what we should do. And, and I, I remember before I joined, I thought, I don't know this, their tech already exists. So we just have to legalize it. So that'll might take like five years. And then after that first conversation where the labels were on Capitol Hill doing and you know explaining they didn't want to obstruct the future of digital business but at the same time we could not get any we could not get any music from them to to use in the service and so i thought okay i missed i really missed i had a huge blind spot i didn't see how this was going to be so protracted and it would take so long to be able to get everyone aligned and on board but largely what i worked on in those early days was things like, you know, the, you know, the database structure, um, what kind of tags and what kind of categories, how we were going to categorize music genres, the, the business model, or at that time it was, you know, streaming, this was 2000. So there was no streaming, but there were access based models of being able to get access to downloads or to tethered um, you know, downloads that are tethered or downloads that are permanent. And I was, I have to also insert that I was one of two women on a team of 70. So that was, you know, this was a huge cultural adjustment for me from going from radio where I was known and I had, um, I had a really, really solid grasp to a software company where I felt like I was a little bit of a fish out of water and and didn't really understand enough about software development to make to make myself credible. And um, and I, I quickly learned, you know, if I, I if I'm going to do this, I can't just be the content girl. You know, I, I will forever be asking software developers for things that are, you know, in, you know, can't be built or impossible to build unless I understand more about it. And, um, and so then that was really a turning point for me of, am I going to, am I going to go back to an industry that I understand, or am I going to continue to pursue this and knowing that it's going to take an enormous amount of learning. And I decided the latter, I decided that I wanted to continue to learn, but I did, I left real because it was also it was terrible. It was a terrible time. It was the, I joined the year the stock went from 96 to $4. Mm. It was in the midst of the dot-com crash and, you know, just a really, really brutal internal culture. And at the same time, 
there was this little renegade station in Seattle called KCMU that I had worked at. It was a sister station to an NPR news station. It had been spun out and then got funding from Paul Allen and Vulcan um, and was working in, in collaboration with the Experience Music Project, which was which was Vulcan, you know, Vulcan funded uh, music museum. And so I went there and it was it was a huge learning for me in that in that role, because I I this station has, you know, it's this really progressive, um, independent music, music radio station that just handpicked all the music, very much a taste making station. So we had funding to be able to build out streaming to build out a playlist generator a live playlist which was groundbreaking at the time um we the dmca which was enacted in 1998 had it really wasn't enforced until 2003 and so we were trying to work with the language of the dmca to figure out how we can build a service and what's legal and what isn't legal even though it wasn't, um, you know, sound exchange wasn't even really established at, at that time in 2001. But I learned, you know, I learned with a group of Microsoft developers, as well as um, this advanced technology group at the University of Washington that did a lot of the coding. Um, I really learned about, you know, software development and design and product and architecture and did that for three years and built out all of all of KXP's streaming and on-demand features that's i also that's also where i learned how to how to license music and i remember one of my first one of my first indoctrinations was doing a um it was a it was a live performance at bumbershoot which is this huge music festival in seattle in the main on the main stage so there were going to be twenty six thousand people there and it was sonic youth and wilco and we were going to, I had struck a partnership with Real Networks, KXP, and we were going to live stream it, you know, live webcast. But the but the manager from Wilco, he wouldn't sign the agreement until he met me, until we were be backstage before the show. So we had to set everything up with the wow. ISDN line. And web, you know, and having a secondary mix. So I had to hire an engineer and do all of this, not knowing whether he would show up and say no or would show up and say yes. And so I thought, okay, this is how this whole thing works. All right. Do I have an appetite? <laughs> do I have an appetite yeah, for yeah. this? But um, but it all came, it all came off. They agreed, and he brought me a signed agreement. And um, and so you know, so KEXP was this was this really highly experimental time in digital. And then and then I did an MBA. And because I, I realized this is all going to go international. And I wanted to learn more about that. So I did an MBA on international business. And while I was doing that, I was also doing it was kind of my first attempt at consulting where I did some projects there was a European company that had a joint venture in China. So I licensed some Chinese music back to MSN and, and Apple. I also did a couple of other non-music projects in China. And um, and then after after two years in the MBA and doing that, then I joined Sonos and worked for Sonos in the early days, which which was also, you know, I think of a lot of this as like a puzzle. 
And so the Sonos piece was was really the hardware, hardware software content. How do you get that integration right? And um, and Sonos was at that time was largely a software company. And so we had, you know, we didn't even have speakers. It was just zones that connected your existing stereo speakers so that they could have you could have a, a wire a wireless connected home experience. And that was also that was a really fascinating time because at the very beginning, I thought, why didn't the world did they hire me? I mean, everyone here is either from software or hardware. I'm again, kind of this fish out of water and we had integrated Rhapsody and we were working on nap on a uh, Pandora. And after a couple of days, one of the founders said to me, we want you to find the Rhapsody like service that covers all the rest of the world. And I said, oh, okay, this is 2007. So I said, well, I don't, I don't need to go anywhere to tell you there isn't a single service that covers the rest of the world. And it's because of rights and it's because of licensing. And, you know, and I was starting to explain this and, and he said, just stop, stop. We don't want to hear any more of this nonsense about music rights and all that. Just go, just go figure it out. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I will start going to figure this out. And I just started traveling to Europe. And I did find Spotify when they only had 17 employees. Wow. It was, yeah. So it was just this little startup in, in Stockholm. But, uh, you know, Nicholas was doing the license. Nic Nicholas and Petra and Daniel were there. And there were a couple of other, you know, product people. But I knew immediately when I met them that it, that was a different company than other startups that I had met. You know, I, I think the the determination, they had some money, they were tackling Europe first as opposed to the U.S., which made an enormous difference. But they were in, you know, they were in beta and testing for years. And, um, and so, and, you know, they weren't really ready to be integrated into a hardware product. You know, but Deezer was was in the process of going from a upload service to a legal, legally licensed service. And so, you know, the Sonos experience to me was was really like it was the first time that on demand streaming made sense because it took music off of the laptop and into your home. And it's hard now to remember that at that time we had like trios we had some early, early iPhone, I think, you know, and, and Android wasn't even around yet. And they were Nokia devices. And so we didn't really have the storage, the networks or the devices to have a good mobile experience that didn't really happen until iPhone. And then when they built their SDK and, and, and their, um, their app store. So on-demand streaming before that time, before 2007, any kind of any kind of streaming and access-based music was largely coming through your laptop and laptop speakers. And I thought, well, this is this is silly. You know, who wants to sit at your laptop? And um, and so with Sonos, once I saw, oh, it's in a natural listening environment and it's getting music in the home, then I thought, okay, so this hardware makes the software and the consumer experience of streaming music make sense. And so that was really that was a really really critical time for mobile development as well because 
at the same time that Sonos was building its own ecosystem, Apple and then Android, you know, they started building out, you know, entertainment on the phone. It's, you know, if you're going to buy this new phone and all you can do is text and message and maybe have, you know, have email, um, that's that was really what a BlackBerry was. And that was leading at the time. Well, I'm just curious, what was your job title there? At Sonos, I was um, I was in charge of music. I think it was like music partnerships, and I was in the product group, which was great because I love I love you know product management and you know thinking about all aspects of the user experience, the partners, the integrations, the business deals. Did you go out on your own after Sonos? Is that when you began consulting? Well, then I moved to LA. And I was in Santa Barbara at the time, and um, and it was a pretty hard adjustment to go from the underground Seattle culture. I was in Seattle in like the 90s and the early 2000s, and then to go to this manicured Southern California <laughs> little paradise of, of Santa Barbara. I was like, where's the graffiti? I need, <laughs> I need more urban culture. But uh, then I moved to L.A., and I started uh, working with 7Digital. And they didn't have rights or they didn't have any deals in the U.S. And so, you know, as a as a back end music provider, it was, you know, very much a, a niche product. But I felt like at the time, especially this was like 2009, I felt like, you know, there are going to be a lot of services, a lot of music services that that need to, you know, that need to deploy fast to market. And if everyone has to ingest millions of songs, that's not going to, you know, or even a million songs, that's going to take forever. And so, um, so I started up seven digitals business here and then it was supposed to be a three month project, but it ended up, ended up being four and a half years. And, uh, funny how that works. Exactly. As these things, as these things happen, but it was really a combination of, shepherding in deals and getting all of the labels and getting people having a local representative. And then once we built up the business to have enough, um, have enough us business, then we incorporated a us entity and hired a us team. And, and that was really the seven digital piece is it was ultimately like the sausage factory of music because it's all of these things that most people don't see of the supply chain and metadata and ingestion and DDEX and then how licenses work and how rights and money gets settled and who gets paid what when and how do all the European societies work versus the US. And there were many times in my in my working experience there that I I thought, oh, I, you know, all this operational, I, you know, I don't want to know it. I don't even want to learn any of this. And but I had to, to really understand how the API works and how calls to the API and, you know, catalog management. And, and I'm really, really thankful that I did be learn all of that because it, it has been, it's been incredibly valuable to have the, the, you know, the business, the licensing and the kind of the front end product experience, and then also understand all of this that goes underneath the hood, which um, which is a lot of it that trips people up because they don't, for instance, now it's been very much publicized that there's a problem matching the sound recording to the publishing. 
but it really wasn't until I was working on a, for a huge electronics manufacturer, I was working on an on-demand licensing deal for them. And I, you know, I was like, oh, wow. So, you know, we can't seem to, even these third parties that administer these rights can't seem to match the metadata. And then there was this statutory damage that was in the copyright law at the time. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is this is going to blow up. It's just a matter of of when and with whom the the lawsuits are going to start. And um, and that was ultimately what led to Spotify getting sued and then most of the other DSPs getting sued and then the, the development of the Music Modernization Act. I don't know if I've ever met someone with as broad and experienced palette in digital music as you, because <laughs> you've you covered just about everything, every aspect, where there's a lot of experts that are siloed in, in one of those things, but you covered it all. That's pretty amazing. Well, it's it's so funny because, I mean, it's always really made sense to me because I see it like a big puzzle and that I always felt like, well, if I don't understand, if I don't understand software, then I'll never be able to understand products. And if I don't understand hardware, I'll never understand delivery and, you know, and, and what it takes in that world. And so there were, there were times that many different times in my, in my professional life where different people would say things to me, like, why are you, you're jumping all over the place? You know, like, Mm -hmm. like this doesn't make any sense. Why would you, why would you go to, real networks and then do an MBA and then go to Sonos and then do this weird seven digital thing that nobody's ever heard of. And why don't you just go work for Microsoft or why don't you just go work for Google? And, and to me, I, I felt like it was, it was less about getting a job and it was more about how can I get the next piece to the puzzle? Like what company is going to give me that other piece? And, um, and so I feel like my decision making about the jobs that I took and then, you know, later when I started my own company in 2014, the projects that I take, I'd still a lot of that thinking is, is I will work with companies, you know, tons of the companies come to me and, and I don't work with everyone that, that comes to me. I just, you know, have decided to be really choosy about it, but I do always think about you know, how can I be successful for this company? You know, what do they need? And am I poised to be successful, both in my knowledge base and my network, but also are they open to the ideas and to guidance of where I, you know, I can steer them. But I also think about what am I going to learn with this company? And so I, you know, I'm not someone who just wants to do nothing but music licensing 24 seven. And I could very easily do, do not absolutely nothing but that, but I like to get deeper into the technology and into, you know, now with AI and web three and decentralized technologies and some of the new gaming types of experiences, I find it incredibly stimulating and fascinating to learn about how the technology and how these companies work. Well, let's go there. I think that's a good segue here into what's currently happening and it looks like going forward. Let's start with Web3. That was so hot for a while and now it seems less so. 
and I'm wondering why. What's your take on it? I think that uh, there was almost every time there's new technology, there's an enormous burst of activity. It almost always surrounds music because all these companies are always, whether it's live streaming or on-demand streaming or radio style streaming or Web3, they all see music and artists have fans. So if we engage with the music business, we'll onboard that and that will be a reason, that will be how we, we reach consumers is that we will bring music into it. And the vast majority of companies who do that when there's new tech, they're technologists and they don't understand what they're getting into. And then they start to kind of wrap their heads around, oh, wow, okay. So like, for instance, the live streaming thing that happened during the pandemic, there were there were so many companies. And at the beginning, many of them were people who had worked in live. And so they're like, well, we don't need it. All we need is PRO rights. And they're like, no, no, you know, now you're in a digital now you're in a digital world and no longer on stage and that changes everything. And so, you know, that was a big burst of activity. I still feel like there's room for live streaming and on demand in, you know, in live in, you know, particularly super fan kind of environments. Um, but it isn't, you know, it isn't comparable to going to live concerts. And so, um, so I think when web three came around, I, I really divide that into a handful of buckets, you know, you know, with the, lots of d different kinds of decentralized technology and AI, but there's the, you know, NFTs, which I think are going to really evolve into all different flavors of interactive fan clubs. There's fractionalizing rights. So users or companies can invest in music rights and then, um, you know, in, in some sort of platform environment. And then there's experiential of metaverse and immersive experiences. And with all of these, there over the last couple of years, there was just, you know, an, an inordinate number of companies that, you know, got into the space that said things like, yeah, we think we've looked at this provincial little music rights and we think we're beyond we're beyond that in an in a post copyright world and and um and I think we're in a stage right now of there's two things happening with web3 is companies are building infrastructure so I don't think any of these things are going away but it's it's kind of like you think about the infrastructure that we had to build for what we have now. We didn't, at the early days, we didn't have AWS. We didn't have APIs. We didn't have storage. We didn't have any of these, any of these interoperable systems. And the, with Web3 technologies, those, all of those, that infrastructure doesn't exist. So it's all being built, but there's simultaneously this separating of wheat from chaff of who, who has an appetite to carry on with, music and um and what are those platforms going to look like and what kinds of experiences and who will they engage with will they you know like right now a lot of the platforms have creator tools that are built directly in but there's limitations to that because you know creators who are assigned to to labels or publishers can't just do what they want um 
So we're in the midst of, I think, sorting out. And I think in the next three to five years, we'll see what this looks like. But I still feel like I still feel like there are transformative experiences that can be built that um, that enable a, diff- a completely different way of fan and artist engagement, a different way of managing rights, a different way of transacting. And um, and right now, you know, crypto is getting sorted out. Platforms are able to accept money. It's a very, very even the last two years, it's been a very clunky user experience if you want to buy an NFT or, you know, you go buy crypto and then transfer that to your wallet and then you attach your wallet to a platform and then you buy whatever you want. And then, you know, then you detach your wallet and then you don't remember what your keys are to log in and you don't, you bought an NFT and you don't know where it is. And, you know, the user experience has to be much more elegant and much more mainstream in order to get music consumers on board. But, um, but I think it is going to be part of the mix. Vicki, when it comes to like the metaverse, isn't there a really basic problem there in that most people will listen on their phones, but the bandwidth is limited Yeah. in most cases. Well, I think with the metaverse, I think that, I think that a lot of this is going to be really generationally divined. You know, if you think about Roblox, they have, you know, 67 million daily active users. They are they are under 25. Um, most of them are under 16. I think that we're going to see in metaverse, we're going to see kind of virtual worlds, virtual concerts, different kinds of real-time social interactions. And I think that that right now there is a big generational divide where there are a lot of people who are probably, you know, 40 or older who are kind are still just puzzled. Like, why in the world would you want to buy a virtual T-shirt? And then you kind of explain to people, well, that's for their avatar and dressing an avatar. And and this makes sense to this really young generation in the same way that I think, you know, we saw the digital natives who are now probably in their 20s and 30s that they were children and they never knew anything except smartphones. And, um, and so I think that, I think that, you know, for me, I, I see the metaverse and virtual worlds and immersive experiences as having less being less about going in and having a Spotify or Apple music type of experience and more experiential more about with a baseline of gaming and other kinds of engagement activities and social activities. And people oftentimes ask, well, don't you think the metaverse is going to need, you know, a full catalog of music? And, and I, I don't really, I don't really see that right now. I don't see, uh, you know, things are, you're not really going to be going into these kinds of worlds completely alone they're going to be social and so you're not going there for the music in other words you're not going there for the music the music is is really additive and it can be like especially if there's a live concert or there's a playlist or maybe there's a virtual music festival or a virtual music store or something like that there's music there 
but it's it's not it's not a hundred million songs. Yeah, it's yeah. a small collection that's right for your audience, and so it's highly curated. You know, you mentioned something before about the generational divide, and if we just extend out into the future, I'm wondering if that divide, that same divide, is going to happen to this particular generation. So when they age out, everyone under sixteen, what is it, eight to sixteen, ten to sixteen, when they get in their twenties or thirties, even. Are the next generation coming up, are they going to look at these technologies as well? That's for them. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, Roblox is interesting because they have definitely aged up their users, where even a couple of years ago, it was really, really young. And they, you know, they're now their fastest growing segment is going up to, I think, age 24, like 16 to 24. I also think, you know, I, I, I also think kind of in the opposite direction where, you know, there are a lot of companies now that are not music companies. They are, um, you know, HR training, they are doing conference calling and they're building in the metaverse and they're building in virtual worlds and they're in, you know, in integrating and working on the unity and, you know, and gaming engines because of the engagement. And so I also feel like, I can't quite, you know, I can't quite see all the steps, but I can also imagine that as this generation is growing up and is very accustomed to virtual worlds, we're also very much, I, you know, this virtual working experience where nobody's in an office and people are living all over the world of, you know, there, there's, there are huge problems to be solved on team building, empathy, getting together socially in remote locations. And I think the metaverse and some of the decentralized technologies underneath that are going to be able to enable those kinds of experiences. So even the most mundane things of your HR or empathy training or manager training, what would be so what would be better than sitting with 12 squares on Zoom or to be feeling like you're sitting around the room virtually as yourselves or, you know, hyper real life, you know, virtual versions of ourselves or avatars. Yeah, you're right. Okay. How do you see AI playing into this? Well, I've always seen AI as a really critical thread throughout all of the Web3 technologies because for, for so many of them, it is, um, you know, it's an essential part of both efficiency around engagement and around, you know, creativity. I feel as excited about AI and these decentralized technologies and possibility for change as I did in 1999 when I tried first Napster. And that's why I'm so, I'm like, oh, I'm so on fire and I want to learn as much about everything as possible. Because I think with with AI, I've, I've looked at this, you know, really talked to a lot of companies. And I think that I think there's a, um, you know, there's all these creator tools that are being developed and that are out in the market right now that are every, that's everything from everything from, you know, rhyming and songwriting to we will have plugins for, to DAWs that have, mu you know, AI music in them. And so all, a lot of things that I think artists are going to completely embrace. And I see a lot of I see a lot of the tools for AI for the creators as really being less of less of a fear of replacement, but as an extension 
to creators. You know, I like imagine if you are someone who is, you know, who has a songwriting style or performance style and you can have the efficiency of being able to have something that's trained, that's just going to help speed up your process. You know, and I, I always think about things like the drum machine when that came around and everyone was like, oh, drum machines are terrible. It's just going to, there's never going to be a need for drummers anymore. And what did it end up being? It ended up being a tool for creators to keep time and practice and, you know, and practice sessions and maybe really, really lean tours. Uh, you don't have to have a drummer, but for the most part, it's a creator tool. And then I think there's, with AI and and music, I think there's the, you know, these kind of things that are that are probably going to be litigated and there will be problems of companies that are using commercial recordings to train their AI and they are not, you know, they didn't have permission to do that. And so, you know, there's there's been, I think, uh, you know, surprisingly a lot less of people trying to release you do that and then release music for commercial purposes. I think there's the, the industry has established that it has, that it has pretty strong lines and limits around these things. And then I think there's this, there's a zone of opportunity for stakeholders, for labels and publishers who own catalogs to, you know, let their artists you know, use AI to improve efficiency, to take their sound recordings and make new versions, make a down tempo, an up tempo, a, you know, a chill lo-fi version of a pop song um, without having to send the artist into the studio um, for publishers to be able to create lots of cover versions of songs. And, you know, maybe for rights holders who have traditionally very complex rights to get into more background background music and, you know, music that isn't quite as highly protectable. You know, let, let me share something with you. I'm developing a AI for music production course. So I've been into this pretty deeply. I've played with over a hundred different apps and plugins, music related for the most part. Like I say, I think I have my arms around it pretty well. But that being said, I did a survey that I sent out to my mailing list, which is about 60,000 people. And it was all about AI and their feelings about it. And two things came back that really jumped out. One is a lot of the respondents were afraid to learn about AI right now, but not for the reason you think, because they felt it was moving so fast that whatever they learned was going to be outmoded tomorrow. Oh, that's so interesting. Second thing was they felt their creativity was going to be sapped, that they would no longer have the ability. And of course, what I think what we all know, it's just a tool. It's not going to replace musicians. If you use it well, right. it's just going to be a way to do things faster and easier. But that's not the way it's being perceived right now. I think that's really fascinating about the the first reply, because we have had you know, de you know, couple 20, 20 some years now of technological development that far exceeds the average person's ability to keep up. And so there's the separation in society and it's not just, you know, oh, people who are, um, you know, uh, you know, on the, on, you know, who work in tech and everyone else, it's, it's everyone of, 
you know, we cannot, the, you know, humans just cannot keep pace. And so there's a fatigue around new tech. And even with, I even notice it like every time the iPhone comes out or every time I get a new device and, and I feel like, oh God, you know, what are, you know, how does this camera work now? Now I can't just take a photo anymore. Now I have to learn all of these new features. And depending on the time, the time of day in my mood, sometimes I'm really excited about that. And sometimes I, I, I see it as drudgery. And that response seems that a lot of people feel like, well, I, you know, wake me up in, wake me up in a few months once you guys have this all sorted out and then I'll, then I'll put my, my brain cells on it. But until then um, I'll let somebody else figure it out. Well, a lot of it is because of the sensationalistic news that they're reading about where there is something new every day that is coming out and there is something new that is being promoted. A lot of it has to do with the fact that it's another iteration of the same thing almost. But well, and it's, and it's that. also on the tail end of a couple of years of intense Web3, yeah. where the, it, everything was so raw and so new that we're all trying to figure out smart contracts and different, how did the, all these different blockchains work? And, you know, what is a permission blockchain? What is a non-permission blockchain? How do hashes work? What, uh, you know, all of this, which is which is kind of the equivalent of us all learning about Oracle databases, you know, where we, we don't really, we don't really need to know most of that. We yeah. just really want to know, well, how will decentralized technologies bring us new opportunities? But we've been way, way, way deep in all of that. And I think a lot of people also felt like, oh God, I wasted so much time and energy in the last two years, trying to understand how Web3 and NFTs work. And now half of what I learned is completely irrelevant and it, everything is changing again. And there's a there's just a getting back to the business kind of mode, I think, where people tend to be in the, you know, in the music business, especially labels and publishers, they tend to be under constant siege of everybody's pitching everything to them and they really want to sort out what are the opportunities now where I can, I can light up my catalog and do something and earn money um, versus what is something that's speculative at best and might not happen at all. And I'm not going to spend as much time on it. Last question. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way, or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, I think that in music, if we just say music business, there's, I think one of the things that is really, really important in for anybody who's ever trying to build anything with music is that, that, you know, you need, you need to go deep enough into how the industry works to be able to understand if the problem that you want to solve is something that can be solved. And then you then you have to go a little bit deeper and usually find people who are more experienced than you are to help you figure out how to navigate that. Because I think one of the biggest flaws that I have seen going back to the earliest days to, you know, working you know, with Sonos, trying to find music streaming services that, you know, most of them that were that were trying to set themselves up have failed 
to Seven Digital, working with startups and enterprise companies, and then my own company now is that is that people who people who want to do things in music, unless you've done unless unless you've done something in music before, they come in and they see things on a surface level, and they don't really understand the dynamics not just beyond rights, even beyond rights, they don't understand the dy- the dynamics of how this industry operates. And so when I talk to companies who have never done anything in music before, I always ask them a whole series of questions and they're complete trick questions because their answers really do tell me whether or not I'm going to work, <laughs> whether or not I'm going to work with them. And they tell me whether they've done any kind of homework at all. Like if they, you know, if their answer is we want to disrupt, you know, we want to disrupt the music business, we want to disrupt labels, mm. you know, I feel like that's not going to happen. You know, like the, the, the labels are stronger now than they ever have been. The publishers are in great positions. You know, there's always room for improvement on who gets paid what, but, but, you know, this is a long haul, it's a long game. So you have to be, you know, if you, if you're getting in it for a short-term win, and you want to sell, that's probably not a good answer. If you want an entire catalog of music, I, I'm, I believe that that ship has largely sailed. Like, and then if you think that you can disrupt this business, these are things that it's like, you will likely not be successful and I don't want to waste my time on it. You can find out more about Vicky and Cross Border Works at crossborderworks.com. That's crossborderworks, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Thank you.